I'm Glenn Crooks, and this is On Frame, a New York City film festival of soccer movies. Yeah, we've got it. The Kicking and Screening Film Festival. Greg Lawless, he's the uh, executive editor of MLSsoccer.com, also the co-founder of KNS, now in its 11th year. It'll uh, run June the 4th through the 7th at the Scandinavian House in Manhattan. Greg's going to be with us with a nice capsule of the featured films. One of those films puts a focus on Kearney, New Jersey, a town that produced Tony Miola, John Harks, Tab Ramos. Historian Tom McCabe is one of the producers of Soccer Town USA, and he'll be here to share some of the fascinating stories about this small village that in many ways is the birthplace of soccer in the U.S. Before we get to the films, Let's review New York City FC's match at Chicago on Saturday, a 1-1 draw. The Pigeons extending their MLS leading unbeaten streak to eight, four wins and four draws. Well, the Fire took a 1-0 lead on C.J. Sapong's goal in the 28th minute. Then Alexandru Matriza leveled the match five minutes before halftime, and that was all the scoring. Not the best soccer, especially the first half hour for New York City FC. Here's head coach Dome Tarant. Uh, it's a fair result for 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 both, but uh, maybe uh, I'm talking about that with you many times. Uh, it's not about the result. Maybe we played the worst the worst first time in this year, even better uh, worse than Toronto. Toronto referring to the four to nothing loss earlier in the year at Toronto FC, the lone defeat for City this season. We just lost one game in in the MLS right now. Is this is, is good for us, but uh, I'm sure we will play the playoff and we play uh, these kind of games for sure. Four wins, one loss and seven ties. So with all the draws, just 19 points out of a possible 36. Only New England, FC Cincinnati, Sporting KC and Colorado have fewer victories. Cities in sixth place of the Eastern Conference heading into the weekend where they have another road match against Columbus on Saturday. A Columbus win coupled with a Toronto FC victory at Vancouver on Friday and New York City will fall below the playoff line. The crazy world of MLS. So when you think of soccer in the five boroughs, one of the things that comes to mind and it's in its 11th year is the kicking and screening film festival in New York City. Unique in that it is all soccer films. Uh, a guy here who is the co-founder of uh, Kicking and Screening, uh, this film festival, is also the editor-in-chief of MLSsoccer.com, so those who follow MLS uh, are on that website all the time, checking out the content, and uh, he spends a lot of time there, but I know he also spends a lot of time on this project. He's Greg Lawless. Hey, Greg. Hey, Glenn. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Uh, 11 years. So you have this, um, I'm going to call it cute, little, uh, you have 11 films, 11 years, there's 11 players on the soccer pitch at the start of a match. So We like to think of it as you know, thematically connected as opposed to saying cute, but uh, I appreciate that too. <laughs> I'll take cute, man. You know, puppies well, and kittens and all that. Cute, right? <laughs> so. Well, the development of all this, uh, how about per personally, do, do you have a passion? I know you have a passion for the game, but it, do you also have a passion for film? Is that how this all came about? Um, <clears throat> this actually didn't come about with uh, any great passion for film. I, obviously, I love film, um, and it, who, I, more likely, though, I love storytelling. So any good stories, and you connect it to my real passion, which is the game, and I'm going to be excited about it. But um you know, the festival came about 11 years ago when I met a woman named Rachel Marcus, uh, who is my co-founder of the festival, and she's really a film person. 
And if you think about us, she's like, you know, 80% film, 20% soccer, and I'm 80% soccer and 20% film. So we kind of became this perfect, I don't know, 200%, if you will. Um, and uh, so, you know, I wouldn't say that uh, it, it just really worked r- nicely because she could then go and source good films. And I could try to cultivate the community in New York and elsewhere uh, around soccer itself and say, let's put these together. So how did it initially go about trying to, to find filmmakers who were doing things about soccer? I mean, did you find that there were a lot out there that weren't getting exposed? Well, when we started in 2009, um, we found that there were uh, there were more films than we expected, I think. Um, and there were actually a lot of films and filmmakers who just weren't getting an audience out there. They weren't getting the distribution that they potentially uh, deserved. Um, and so that's really where we started the Film Fest, which was this idea of these are great stories that aren't being told. Um, and you have to remember, 10, 11 years ago, the soccer culture, if you will, not just in the United States, but globally, was a little different. It wasn't as um, cultured, if you will, right? And there's been over the last 10 years a real move toward finding the the cultural, the ar- the artistic, the aesthetic, and everything around the game, the deep storytelling that exists that I think in the past was basically just sort of oral tradition, if you will. But now people started to document it a little bit more. I mean, obviously there have been great soccer films for you know decades if you go all the way back to uh, Victory and things like that. But um, you know, I think people started to really notice some of these really beautiful, cool stories that could be told over the last decade or so, and now they're telling them, right? So um, we found a couple of films in 2009. Uh, one of them was about the New York Cosmos. Obviously, that was an amazing story and film. Um, and then over the years, we continually get, you know, submissions of, you know, 75 to 100 films every single year that we have to sift through to find the best. And that's where Rachel really comes in, and she has, she looks at it from a filmmaker's perspective, um, even less so than a community perspective. There are t- sometimes we have arguments over which film should be in the festival, and she's saying something like, but "Are you two the deciding factors?" We, we, just and a, she, I, I usually, mean, don't you need a third? Like, if I usually you, no. you well, choose the third one, she chooses the, one. Who who's, who t- who breaks the tie? Uh, she does. <laughs> 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 Honestly, that's what happens. Uh, I, I ultimately I acquiesce. Is what happens. <laughs> so, um, but ultimately, we you know we have these fights over sh- things. Like she'll say, "This is such a beautiful film," or I'll say, "This is a great film. This would sell really well. People would really want to see this." And I would say, and she would say, "Yeah, but the film is bad." And I don't want to promote a film that's just not good enough. What she's actually started doing, what we're doing, is actually helping some of the filmmakers to say, you know, if you trim this by, say, 20 minutes, you'd have a really tight, really good film. But because it's this way, it's not as good. So See, I was going to ask you, what makes a good film? So she's the more the on the film side. What, what kinds of things has she uh, pointed out over so the years? I, I, what we've noticed is because these films, a lot of the soccer films that are made um, are often made by uh, filmmakers who are not necessarily as professional or evolved as filmmakers as you might uh, see your typical really high-budget type of film. So, um, you know, Asif Kapadia, who's making the Maradona film that's coming out this summer, just showed at Cannes and all that kind of thing. He is a legit filmmaker and has been doing it for many years. He made Senna. He made Amy. These are like, so he knows how to really tell a story in the right form and the way to do it. I think a lot of the soccer filmmakers that we've uh, come across um, are still new to the game, and this is something that they're, it's more of a passion play for them. 
And so they don't necessarily have the film making chops quite yet, and they're getting there, and this is one of the ways they show it. So what, what we have found often is length. It is incredible how often the stories seem to extend longer than they could or should, really. and that if We've all been at those movies, though, where it's like, come on. Well, yeah, but you, you could have ended this a, a half hour ago. You could have ago. ended a half hour ago, or there was a 15-minute chunk in the middle that was unnecessary for the story. Right. And it would have ended up being a better story because you would have been forced to really find the nuggets and the best lines within that story. I'm sure when you're editing so, your website at MLSsoccer.com, you are trying to trim. The reporters absolutely. reporters have more Writers to tell. Writers do and this you, all the time, yeah, right? Yeah. And this idea of, like, you know. Um, I'll, I'll, you know, I was a big fan of a guy named Norman McLean, who was a writer. He's most famous for um, the book A River Runs Through It. And he talks about his father teaching him how to write. And every time he'd hand in a paper to his father, his father would say, go write it again, half as long. Go write it again, half as long. Because <laughs> if you can tell that same story and you trim it in half and then trim it in half again, but you're still telling the same story that evokes the same emotion, it'll, it actually leaves more space to tell more of the story ultimately. So, so you don't find that to be more a sign of the times when people have a shorter attention span? I think it's, I think it's been there for a long time. Yeah. You know? um, and so I think that that's one of the things we've noticed a lot. We tell a lot of um, uh, people like, this is one of those things you could really improve your story is if, if you take this hour and 20 minutes and make it an hour, right? Or you take this two hours and make it an hour and 20 minutes, or you take this 10 minutes and make it five minutes, your storytelling will actually be better usually. So have you, uh, films that you've presented or maybe even films that are uh, will be presented this year, have you advised those filmmakers and they've adjusted before it, we've seen it at the festival? Uh, yes and no. Um, um, yes, there have been moments that have been like that. I think that more often than not, though, you know, these filmmakers are very smart and so they see us as a resource but then they're also talking to other people and they're getting uh suggestions from a lot of people sure. right so i mean even soccer town you know we've been talking which uh, soccer town usa which will sc screen on closing night this year at KNS, um, you know, we've been talking to them about the filming of this this story for a long time, and even I think seeing you know works in progress as it's been going. And Rachel's been giving feedback on it, you know. Um, well, Tom McCabe, so, who it produced it, uh, mm -hmm. one of the producers and and the, and the lead figure there, I think, in, in getting it together, uh, he he will be on the program a little bit later on, describing it in full, his experience and some of his experience in soccer in the metropolitan area. Great. But he said just that. I mean, they've been working on this for a long time. Right. I remember at the convention, I think, in Philadelphia, yeah. they were it's, filming it, then. Yeah, it's been there for a while. So, you know, and, and so I think they can just – people have used us more and more as a sort of a sounding board for things. And they'll, they'll send us things, hey, this is uh, in the works. I remember um, the Bob Bradley film, We Must Go. Uh, if I remember, you remember that about his time in Egypt. It was made by some right. filmmakers um, – uh, named Copper Pot Pictures with the production company. And, you know, we saw an early draft of that and before it was made, and we had some thoughts on it as well. Hmm. They Maybe they took our thoughts, maybe they didn't, right? But at least it was yeah. in their head as they were continuing to make the film. It seems that our more, you know, Netflix comes to mind. Yep. Uh, with Amazon Prime, I, I don't know what else I have on my iPad and right. download <laughs> these things, but yeah. there seem to be many, many more views of soccer on these uh, great documentaries uh, uh, La Liga with that six part series I can't remember uh, with, with the La Liga teams I don't even the, the six six dreams six dreams yep. Uh, Which was actually made by um, a, a guy uh, that named Justin Webster who's a film uh, producer out of Barcelona he in fact 
made a film called Barcelona Confidential, which was one of the films that we've shown. He, we've shown two of his films in the festivals, actually, over the years. So, you know, he's been making soccer stories for a long time. He's, and he's, he's a legit filmmaker who's done some great stuff, and Six Dreams is definitely worth it. Uh, we're with Greg uh, Lalas. He's the co-founder of KNS Film Festival. It'll be in New York City June 4th through the 7th at the Scandinavia House. Cool little place. You get your drinks up top, and then you go down below and watch the film. Yep, that's yeah. what it is. I mean, I, I mean, ultimately, we like to think of this as um, a coming together of the soccer tribes of New York, if you will. It right? always so is. You always run into somebody you don't expect, exactly. or, or you meet someone that you maybe over the years you've spoken to or emailed, and yep. they're there. And that's, it's, that's one of the best parts about it, is it. The films, in some ways, are just a vehicle to bring the community <laughs> together. Well, let's, let's review some of the films. Yeah. Uh, Foosballers, that's uh, it's New York City premiere. Uh, it's a 90-minute-plus movie. Uh, give us, and that's on opening night. So yep. t- describe opening night, and then and this this seems like a fun film. It does. So um, this film is really interesting. Uh, we had some internal debates about whether a film about foosball is actually a soccer film or not, right? But around the world, a lot of people call it table soccer. There are lots and lots of other types of table soccer games. The history of foosball is actually comes from Italy, and, and it was played there because they couldn't. the fields weren't necessarily available. And it was, comes out of the war, actually, in World War II, and that's how it ended up coming back to the United States from the GIs wow. and bringing it back. Um, and so we decided, I said very personally because I grew up playing foosball and I still do, if there's a foosball table in the back of a bar, I'm usually back there and not anywhere near where my friends are. Have you been to so Allianz Field yet, uh, Minnesota I, United? I have not. In their big, uh, what's it called, the brew hall, inside the brew hall. I hope they're foosball tables. They are, but they awesome. are also constructed as per Allianz Field. It's like oh, the stadium. Terrific. It's the foosball stadium. That's great. It's, it's really cool. Attention That's to great. detail at this place uh, is, a, is a, it. So yeah. foosball is amazing. Uh, so foosballers is the story of um, the world championship uh, that, that uh, a guy named Tony Spriedman ends up winning. And it sort of follows six of the competitors for this world championship. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful story um, that brings to life a small community of foosball fans that just have a passion for this game. And it tells a little bit of the history of the game, too. So it's a really great little documentary. It's going to be uh, a lot of fun. And then you have these. Oh, and but the, just really quickly. Yeah. So a bunch of the foosballers, uh, including Tony Spriedemann, who is the national, the world champion right now, okay. are going to be in attendance on opening night. They're oh, all coming in. We're nice. bringing a foosball table out. <laughs> so they're going to be playing. If you want to come and test yourself <laughs> against the world champ, How about come that? and do it. Uh, we're very excited about that. All right, that's Tuesday, June fourth. You have a couple of shorts. Uh, now we can die in peace. Yep. And uh, and then goal. Yeah, there's just a couple of little other stories that right. we're just going to throw All out right. there. So. Yeah. All right, so we'll yeah each night you have the the, the feature film and then, and then, then a shorts, couple of yeah. shorts, which are fun. Yep. I've been there before. <laughs> the return of the cup the next night on uh, Wednesday. Tell us about that. So this is the story. It's an underdog story of um, Eintracht Frankfurt, the the Bundesliga club that some people may know from this year because they made a really good run in the Europa League. They are, if you really think about them, they're kind of a small club out of the Bundesliga, right? They're not Bayern Munich. They're not Borussia Dortmund or anything like that. Um, But uh, two years ago, they made this incredible run to the final of the German Cup or the Pokal, as they call it in Germany. And uh, they ended up uh, upsetting Bayern in the final. Uh, the game is in Berlin. This is the story of that run, a specifically incredible access 
at the final in Berlin. They follow them for that entire trip to Berlin. You talk to the fans, you see the players. It's a, it's a really cool story. This is kind of reminds me, uh, Rachel and I were talking about it the other day. It's kind of a, a, a film that um, evokes the traditional classic sports film, all the tropes of that, you know, the underdog story, the passion of the fans, the players that no one expects to be able to do what they're going to do and they rise up in this way. And it's a, so it's a really great story. All right, so that's uh, through night two, yep. uh, night three, and I, I guess there's a way to uh, purchase a package of uh, these nights, or yep. how uh, I, I know Friday yep. night is sold out, so but we'll get to that. Yeah, Friday night sold out, but you can buy tickets for the first three nights. We're calling it the hat trick, so you can get <laughs> tickets for all three nights, it's or you can 11th, go individually it's the for 11th, any of these. There's eleven films. Hey, it's a hat trick. I mean, it's all we marketing, are. my friend. All right. So when it was. Uh, when four uh, film dates were player available, pass. what'd you call that? It's okay. player pass. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On night three, yeah. coach. It's just a, the single word, coach. You would appreciate that, I assume. Yes. And uh, Tracy Ham, and, and this, is a, this is a nice story. Um, get into it a little bit, but Tracy's also going to be on this program a little later to describe. I don't, uh, I don't want to steal her thunder, right. but, but really, coach is the story of perseverance and of a... Um, I don't know if you can say this on the radio, but like flipping the bird to uh, the system uh, when the it's system a, doesn't. This work is a podcast, so I think you can okay, say almost good. anything. So I mean, uh, I mean, ultimately, uh, and doing it in a respectful way, if you can flip the bird in a, in a respectful way. But basically, Tracy was a coach who um, wanted to go for her uh, a high license within the uh, U.S. soccer coaching system. And there are certain rules around coaching uh, and licensing in the United States that if you have played a certain number of years as a professional, you can go directly for, your, I believe it's your B license um, to start there. You don't have right. to go through the E, the D, the C. And t- so because you played pro, you can do that. Tracy tried to do that in the U.S. Uh, soccer and was told that she didn't have the minimum required number of years as a pro. She made the argument, well, the league didn't exist anymore, so I wasn't able to get... And she was playing at whatever the highest level correct. available was. Yeah, right. right? Yeah. And so she was like, I'm not able to do this, so it's an unfair... You're uh, applying a rule that can't apply. Um, there was no dispensation given, so she said, screw it, I'm going to Europe, and she ended up getting her UEFA badge instead, which is obviously a very prestigious badge to get. And this is her story about going to do that, uh, and, and it's a really... Ultimately, it's just a story about sort of against all the odds, she did something amazing and she's a terrific coach uh she still coaches out in san francisco um and uh you know i I think that it's just a story uh, it's a very um an uplifting story ultimately uh and and one that i hope uh, you know right on the eve of the women's world cup starting i think is very poignant as well so good stuff and uh, we'll talk to tracy and uh, she can describe more in full her experience with coach and that's on thursday Thursday night 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 three thursday Thursday, june June 6 okay and then the final night, uh, and it's uh, it's special to me because I grew up in the metropolitan area, specifically New Jersey. I know uh, many of the people involved in this uh, uh, particular movie, uh, Soccer Town USA, where uh, it's Kearney, New Jersey, which it's it's really the, the story is fascinating just to know that uh, you've got the three Miola, Harks and Ramos all coming out of one community, yeah. and uh, but it goes beyond that. It goes well beyond that. And you look at the history of Carney, and, and 
really, if you think about it, Carney, in many ways, one might think is the epicenter of modern soccer in America. Um, I think that's a big, huge statement, but I'm going to say it anyway because, as you said, marketing, right? Um, but uh, anyway, look, I think um, this is a tremendous story um, and one that is needs to be told so that a lot of the new soccer fans in the United States can learn about some of the history of where the game comes from. You know, uh, I think that there is a beautiful legacy of the game that stretches back a hundred years. Uh, many of them in the immigrant populations on the East Coast. We talk also about the immigrant populations in St. Louis about the history of this game. This, I think, is just one of those stories that relays that there is a through line from that history up into where the modern game really kicked off, let's say, in the 1994 World Cup, where you end up with three kids from the same town, same community in New Jersey, playing on the world's biggest stage. And that doesn't happen very often, especially in a country the size of the United States. And, and arguably three of the top players in Absolutely. the history of our uh, U.S. Women's Absol National Team program. Absolutely. Um, so I think that it's a tremendous story, and uh, you know, I think the title says it all. It is Soccer Town USA. And Tom McCabe is uh, one of the producers, and uh, he's a history professor. So the, the history of soccer has always been a big part of, uh, of his studies. And uh, so he's going to join us in a little bit here on Frame to uh, discuss his side of it. And, uh, and one of the things I do ask him is that soccer has been around since the late 1800s in this community. Why are we not further along? Uh, We're along, but why how, aren't we how further along? How long is your along? podcast? No, There's no, a lot to get into. Well, he, he said pretty much the same thing, yeah. but what's your theory on that? Um, it, it, not too long, though. Oh, I have no idea. Uh, okay, good. There, I mean, look, the reality is, yes, this game has been played for many, many, many years. There are you know, theories about the fact that the first college football game of all time, Princeton Rutgers, was actually a soccer game. Uh, well, hey, I just like went to the uh, uh, out at FC Dallas. Yep. Hall Toyota Stadium, Hall, Hall of Fame. They have a big plaque, and I haven't tweeted it out yet. I meant to. Thank you for reminding me. But it, it indicates that the Princeton, right there, the first, the first, uh, first soccer match, first college soccer match was Princeton Rutgers. When, if you go to Rutgers University, they have a big plaque saying it's the first. American football, football college yeah, football that's, match. Yeah. That's traditionally what history the historians will tell you is that it's the first college football game. And yeah. That's what the the mythology is, but eighteen sixty nine. But I've heard I have read various things over the years that say they actually weren't allowed to use their hands and there's all this other stuff about it. <laughs> there was also this originally back uh, on the Boston Common, um, there were soccer games supposedly played on the Boston Common that uh, so you know, look it, it, the history is there. I think that a lot of things um, played factors into, you know, why it didn't, why it was eclipsed, say, by baseball or some other sport um, back in the day. But uh, but I think ultimately worrying about why it didn't get there doesn't get anybody any further forward. Yeah. So it's done, and we should respect that history and appreciate that history. It's always good to know it, but uh, you only know your history so you can start to figure out where you want to go. All right, Greg, uh, as we uh, wrap up this segment, uh, why don't you just express to uh, the listeners uh, what all this has meant to you huh. personally? I mean, you've been around the game. You're part of a trivia question, by the way. <laughs> Where did Jeff Laurentowitz, Tommy McNamara, and Greg Lawless go to college? And, and uh, Corey Gibbs. <laughs> and Corey Gibbs. Don't forget Corey Gibbs. And I think uh, that Juan Agudelo? Uh, no, no, that, no, that's St. Benedict's Prep. That's something else. Sorry, St. Benedict's that. a whole different. Yeah, that's, that's a whole thing. Sorry, that's the Claudio that's, thing. That's Claudio. <laughs> I've been on and both. Pedro I've been on Lopes both sides. And all those guys, right? <laughs> yeah, so yeah. St. Benedict's. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, what does it mean personally? Um, 
By I the way, the Brown University is the answer oh, to the trivia question. But yes, go ahead. Should, um, yes. <laughs> the, uh, you know, what does it mean personally? Um, it means a lot. Uh, I don't think that I ever take the time to think about it too much. Uh, I'm not really an emotional type in that way. But uh, I think that ultimately I like to think I'm a storyteller. But I think that <coughs> my strength as a storyteller is helping other people tell their story get their story out there and be a better storyteller. So I think, you know, if if this were a literary podcast, I'd liken myself to a Maxwell Perkins, which I obviously is way too big of a name for me to really consider myself similar to. But it's that same idea. How can I help really good storytellers become great storytellers or to get their story out there? And so that's what this is really all about. It's what I do in my work every day is helping uh, storytellers tell a better story. So, um that that's what it means to me is that there are great stories in soccer that need to be told that want to be told and what i can do to help them find an audience and to help those stories be told it means a lot very cool greg and thanks to you and rachel for for sharing these films uh well, thanks for helping to promote it so hey now everybody I'm needs to go to kicking and and get tickets all right get them yes kicking and screening Dot com. He is yep. the uh, editor-in-chief of MLSsoccer.com and co-founder of KickingAndScreening.com, yep. or film festival, yep. in New York City, June 4th through the 7th. Greg, thanks so much. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, he's a Ph.D. in American history from Rutgers University, New Brunswick. He's a professor of history now at Rutgers Newark, including a class, The Global History of Soccer. Now, I can tell you this is a course that was never offered to me where I went to school. He authored the book Miracle on High Street, The Rise, Fall, and Resurrection of St. Benedict's Prep, which uh, included uh, such soccer luminaries as Claudio Reyna, Tab Ramos, and Greg Berhalter, our current U.S. men's national team coach. His most recent project is going to be publicly unveiled at the Kicking and Screening Film Festival in New York City on Friday night, June the 7th. It's called Soccer Town USA the story of soccer in Kearney, New Jersey. Welcome in Dr. Tom McCabe. Hey, Tom, uh, it's been a long time coming to, to discuss this as it's now coming out to the public. And I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I think you were working on that. We were at the convention a few years back and you were getting some of your interviews even then. How you doing, man? Uh, I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, that was about two to three years ago uh, at the convention in uh, Philadelphia. And we were doing another round of interviews with uh, our three main characters, uh, Tab Ramos, Tony Miola, and John Hark. So uh, we were off at a hotel in Philly uh, shooting some more interviews. Yeah, I remember that back room area. You had the uh, cameras going, and it was uh, – I mean, it was, I remember the, the, those initial stages of the project and how excited you were. Now, tell us a little bit about yourself. So you, you, you grew up in this area. And uh, how did this all lead to Kearney? Uh, what was your upbringing like? So I grew up in South Orange, New Jersey. I called it an accident of geography because soccer was big in town. So that's how I got to start playing at six, seven you know, years old. And uh, we always would travel into Kearney to play the vaunted Thistle Soccer Club. And I'm the same age as Tony Miola and Sal Rosamilia, two great goalkeepers from Kearney. And I would often kind of stand uh, in the other goal, looking at these guys, always, you know, trying to beat uh, Thistle. So I guess it was, 
you know, those early encounters, because Carney is an interesting place. It's a kind of mysterious, even mystical soccer place. I mean, kids are playing in the playgrounds, you know, the fields are all over the town. They're dust bowls. There's, you know, this mythology uh, around the town. So I, I've always been interested in Carney. And when you study American soccer, you have to uh, look at this as the cradle of American soccer, one of these really, really important uh, places uh, to our game in this country. I, well, I want to get into some of the coursework of this global history of soccer. But first, so so you were a keeper. You played at Princeton. Everyone should know your coach at Princeton was Bob Bradley, the current LAFC coach. Tell us about that experience. Oh, that was a thrill to to play with a lot of my friends uh, uh, from club soccer that you know then went into uh, Princeton University together, and we got a chance to play for Bob. So uh, he was early in his career uh, at that point, and then you know went on to great things in MLS and overseas, and uh, now back with. Uh, you know, a great club in LAFC. So it's uh, always great to still root for Bob and follow his career for sure. All right. Before we get into the uh, the movie, and uh, again, it's uh, Soccer Town USA. It will uh, debut publicly at the KNS uh, Film Festival, this annual event in New York City. It's a great week of, of uh, soccer films. And uh, Tom McCabe, the director, uh, with us here. This global history of soccer, this this course you teach at Rutgers Newark, I'm I'm going to imagine it's quite popular. But what are some of the things uh, that you do? Do you, or how do you explore and tell the stories of soccer? So it's really global history through the lens of soccer, one of these you know worldwide cultural practices. So we start um, with the pre-modern game and then, you know, the modern game from the 1860s on. So you're in, you know, Britain and then it disseminates, it travels around the globe. Uh, so then it's, you know, almost a world tour to the continent, to South America, here in North America and in Asia. And then you're covering all sorts of themes, whether it's nationalism or gender or class or ethnicity. Uh, so it's uh, a really fascinating course to teach at Rutgers Newark in particular, because Rutgers Newark is one of the most, if not the most diverse university uh, in the country. So you have people from all over the world. Uh, you know, with their roots, you know, with their games, uh, and uh, we, we get to have a great time. And we usually have it um, the summer of the World Cup, right? So the last time I taught it uh, was a couple summers ago and hoping to teach it, you know, next year uh, before the European Championships. So it's uh, it's a coming together. I mean, this uh, this diversity in uh, in Newark and and really in this metropolitan area that we we both live, uh, you know, lends itself to the the understanding of what other people are about. So it's it's more than about the sport to you, right? Oh yeah, no, it's about the people, really. I mean, we we rarely would even watch live footage. Uh, of a game or, you know, a historic game, you know, it's all about, you know, the social and cultural uh, elements uh, of the game, you know, that not only happened here in this area, right? I mean, you can walk into any neighborhood or restaurant and, and be in that culture, right? So if it was Croatia, you'd go to Queens, you know, obviously in the Ironbound section of Newark, you have the Portuguese, the Brazilian, the Spanish cultures, and uh, it's almost like uh, you can 
visit the World Cup and its countries just here in New Jersey. I always like to brag about one of my favorite T-shirts, and I'll wear it in uh, the course. And it says New Jersey across the top of the T-shirt, and then underneath it says the greatest country in the world, right? So uh, <laughs> we have all these I'm with you, brother. Cultures. I'm with you, brother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now the, the, this area of New Jersey, uh, you went across – the river and, and, and mention Queens as well, but let's stick with Jersey. Why has this become and and this little pocket become such a uh, a soccer hotbed and producing some of the some of the great players uh, in our national team program? Is it sim- is the simple answer immigration? People arriving from a soccer culture. What's it all about for you? Uh, I, I would, you know, the simple answer for me would be the intersection of immigration, industry and sport, those three things, right? So if you, we take Carney, for example, uh, Scots started coming to Carney in the 1860s, 1870s, uh, when these massive thread mills were built. There were actually Scottish firms that came over here. So they imported this skilled labor, and of course they bring their cultural practices with them, soccer being you know, primary uh, among them. So the Scots have been in that area for you know, uh, 150 years. So, so that's a quick answer. Um, you know, coming here for work and then they bring their games with them. And then New Jersey, you know, is, you know, Statue of Liberty is not far from where I am right now, right? And that's America's front door, right? You know, welcoming in folks uh, and, you know, all throughout northern New Jersey in particular, you have all these different ethnic communities over time. So, yeah, that's what uh, would be the quick answer for that. Well, hey, tell us a little bit more about Carney. You, you mentioned uh, the Scots. And there are there are there's a Rangers supporters club and a Glasgow Celtic supporters club in town. Uh, never the tweens shall meet. <laughs> I mean, I, I've been in both, mostly Celtic, because of my brother Michael O'Neill, who is also a Carney resident, uh, my right. assistant at Rutgers for many years, and now the head coach of the women there. Uh, we would go down and watch Celtic Ranger matches, uh, the old firm, but we would do it in the. Uh, in the Irish, in the Celtic club. But, th- but tell us about the, those distinctions. Correct. Um, so the Scottish American club got started in the 1930s. And it was a social club to kind of bring people together of, uh, you know, from Scotland here in the, New Jersey. Literally the next year, the Irish American club uh, gets founded up on Corny Ave. So you have these two great rivals, one that is Glasgow Rangers in the Scots American Club and one that is Glasgow Celtic in the Irish American. And they would have men's teams and junior teams. So there was some fierce rivalry between those clubs, obviously in the city of Glasgow that were brought over here, the old firm, as you just mentioned. So uh, those games go way back, you know, early in the uh, 20th century. And Mike O'Neill, uh, would have definitely been on the Celtic side, right? Because that's whose father and grandfather and uncles would have supported. So you get that passed down, you know, from one generation to the next. I believe John Harkes was more of a, of a, you know, a, a Dundee, you know, fan because that's where his dad was from. So those attachments from home, you know, come here. Tab Ramos. You know, Uruguayan, right? He would have been Penarol or Nacional. I think it was Nacional. So uh, th- that all gets brought to Carney uh, and part of that that stew, uh, that gumbo, if you will. Uh, Tom McCabe, our uh, guest, uh, he has directed Soccer Town USA, this film that will be uh, 
publicly unveiled June 7th uh, on a Friday night in New York City at the Kicking and Screening Film Festival. You talk about Harks and and his father. That that might uh, you know, that's one of the the great examples of uh, bringing the soccer culture into town, isn't it? Oh yeah, I mean, John in, in a lot of ways is that kind of quintessential uh, Scottish American kid, right? His dad was a player back in Scotland, comes over here, not only to work, but to play settles in Kearney. And then John is the embodiment of that kind of generational, uh, story and, uh, you know, represents, you know, the United States, um, you know, at youth level and obviously, you know, through the men's level and at multiple world cups. And, and then you have an Italian American in Tony, his dad, you know, played uh, in Italy, and then Todd's dad was a player in Uruguay. So you have these kind of three different strands of immigration, Europe, um, South America, you know, Northern Europe and Southern Europe, and then South America, and, and they all make their way to this town of 30, 35,000 people, this, you know, working class town where soccer has been in its DNA for, you know, generations, for 150 years. And uh, they are the embodiment of that. You mentioned before, you know, this long history of national team players. I mean, the, the first unofficial international game between the United States and Kearney takes place. I'm, I'm sorry, Kearney, not Kearney. United States and Canada uh, takes place uh, at Clark Field, which is right across the street from this threadmill. It's now behind the famous diner, Topps Diner. And that's where they played in 1885, 1886. And then by 1916, when the U.S. had their first official um, national team, there were four guys from Corny on it, you know, including a goalkeeper and some midfielders. Right. And then you fast forward that all the way to the 1980s. You've got a goalkeeper and a couple midfielders from that very, you know, same postage stamp of soil, this small New Jersey town that's still very, very influential. You know, and, and the thing that comes to mind while you're talking about this, Tom, if I'm in your class, I'm raising my hand, okay? And I'm going to okay. say, so there was high-level soccer played in the 1800s in the United States of America. Why are we not further along a as a soccer country? Yeah, that, that I know it's a loaded question, a loaded question. but, yeah, but I, Professor I, I McCabe, say, but well, pro Professor McCabe, I need you to answer about that. Right. <laughs> um, so, so you would be one of those students who would get me off on a tangent like this. Okay, now I understand. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what one of the 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 key is how it gets passed down from one generation to the next to the next. That this is important, right? This is meaningful. This is what we do. Uh, and, and in a lot of American towns, you don't have that connection from one generation to the next to the next, right? I think that is changing in more soccer towns uh, around the country now. Mothers and fathers have played, and then they pass it to their kids, and you're getting that third generation still. Um, but, you know, that immigrant story is still very much alive, right? The country continues to get renewed by immigration, so it's important for your you know, uh, parents and your grandparents, they played, you know, parents played, now you play. So that, that that's key. Um, developmental wise, uh, there's, you know, been a lot of disconnect between these isolated soccer towns. So now what I think we see is, is um, more of a connection of these places uh, from from around the country. So I'm hopeful 
in in the, what's getting done now developmentally is is better than what it's been. Uh, but when you look at this small place of uh, of Carney, uh, where I was just reading a quote in my notes the other day, it's uh, somebody said back in the 1980s, it's a place where you knew who was in first place in the English first division rather than who was in first place of the American League, right? Um, so soccer was the key, right? It wasn't football, it wasn't basketball, it wasn't baseball. And then the other thing that they did is that they were always playing. They played tons of pickup soccer. They played before school, at recess, after school, in the summers. And then they had their, you know, club soccer and high school soccer, you know, alongside that. So they had, you know, all these opportunities to play. And when they're playing, you know, at what they called the courts, these old tennis courts, it was winter stays on. It was two or three goals, whatever it was, whatever the rules were, five side, six side. And these were like battle royales and these like big cages. Uh, Robert McCord, who coaches at Monmouth University, you know, compared it to the Thunderdome, right? You know, two teams walk in, one team walks out, right? The winner stays on. So that that uh, competitiveness really became a part of uh, of how they were brought up. And they're playing with men. They're 14, 15, 16, and they're playing against 30-year-old men. So you have – it's not like you're tied to your age group or to your gender. I mean, it's just like whoever's good, get out there and help us win. I was going to bring that up because Tab Ramos, uh, Uruguayan, has often spoken about how it was just pickup where he grew up, and then he came to the States, and now in his position with U.S. soccer, he's trying to create – as best he can a, a culture of of that of that pickup mentality but it is amazing like you said before school recess after school so how did they organize it or was it just uh, were there any interesting stories about how it all came about oh yeah it was organized by them so you mentioned mike o'neill who was a very successful women's coach at rutgers university he had a nickname they called him make a deal o'neill and Mike was always working the phones. This is before cell phones. And he would call players that he wanted on his team for that day and tell them to bring a blue shirt. Maybe another day it would be a purple shirt. So the guys would go scrambling in their you know, bedrooms, find a shirt, and they'd come down. And then that team would be the team for the day. And you would try to put together a run, 10 games, 15 games, because if you lost, you'd have to go to the back of the line. And that was a half an hour wait or longer on certain nights. Uh, So O'Neill was kind of that like player manager, but they made up the rules. You know, uh, we have a great line. I'm looking at it right now in the script. Paul Gardner, the longtime journalist at Soccer America, was one of the you know talking heads. And he really was part of the connective tissue, kind of explaining Corny and, and, and why it's significant. And he says this about uh, pickup soccer. It goes, it's an invention, a creation, an activity, an enjoyment of the kids themselves. They selected the teams. They made up the rules. They decided who was doing it wrong and who was doing it right. So there were no adults involved, right? No coaches. So that learning environment, I think, is what Tab is plugging into, right? All the lessons that you can learn from just doing it with your peers, right? Because you're not going to get picked if you're giving the ball away cheaply or you're not defending or you're not creating. Um, You know, it was we need a a team, a balanced team to help us beat all challengers. 
And I've heard that story uh, from Mike O'Neill before, the uh, master tactician that he is. (laughs) Uh, Tom uh, McCabe, our guest, his movie Soccer Town USA, and that would be the reference to Kearney, New Jersey. And it's interesting, Tom, that here you're talking about the 1980s and you fast forward to 2019 and all the time in between and here we are talking about the importance of pickup soccer again in our development you know get the adults out of the mix and let the kids just play without that intervention because we lack we lack tab ramos who's our tab ramos i guess it's christian Pulisic, who at seven years old was in england with his mother playing pickup soccer before school at recess and after school. So I don't think there's a coincidence there. Oh, exactly. And, you know, his, his mom and dad played, you know, uh, and they passed it on to their kids. So, I mean, that, that's that generational story that, uh, you know, I alluded to before, you know, like you get brought up in a family and an environment um, that that's, you know, going to be great for you, you know, as a person, as an athlete. Uh, and, and they've certainly done that. And I would expect, you know, to find more of those stories as you peel back, you know, uh, who's who in American soccer, both on the men's side and the women's side. Well, this movie is uh, certainly one I, I anticipate and look forward to seeing. T- tell us a little bit more about how long has it been uh, in the process? When did you first start thinking about getting this thing done? And now, uh, for you personally, this must be uh, quite a day upcoming, June 7th. Uh- yeah, that's going to be, you know, one of those days to celebrate. Um, but I'm a historian, right? I'm not a filmmaker. And I was quite content uh, in my office with my books, working on a book project, telling the long story of soccer in Kearney and in the area, including some Newark and Harrison and East Newark. So I get a call one day from a Kearney guy, Kiko Doran, and he says, hey, I hear you're writing a book on Kearney. I want to do a documentary. And I said, so do I. I've always wanted to, to do something like that. So it was that call, you know, that's like, okay, let's, let's do this. And he and I were struggling around for about a year or so. And then we picked up um, a hotshot freelancer in Los Angeles in Hollywood, Robert Penzel, who's the director. So he's, you know, the guy with the lights and the camera and, you know, <laughs> editing it as well. Uh, and then a real big addition to the team was Kirk Rudell, uh, who was a college classmate and teammate of mine from Princeton. And he's been writing comedy in Hollywood for a quarter century now. And uh, he joined the team and, and he, you know, cause he's in Hollywood and knows this, uh, you know, scene has been a huge, huge asset. So uh, that is kind of the, the team. And then we found a, a freelance uh, composer uh, to do the soundtrack. So that, that very lean team has, uh, you know, worked real hard over the last couple of years uh, to get this thing ready uh, for June 7th. So we're, uh, we're really uh, you know, excited, and if I was to just give a brief description of it, it's about four main characters, Tab, Tony, and John, and the town of Corny, and we follow uh, those four characters from their childhood, because they all grow up within about a mile of one another, and through the NASL where they all dream of playing in giant stadium, that dream comes crashing down and then they are fortunate enough uh, to get into the national team program and they make their way with all these other underdog players to the 90 world cup. And then we host it in 94. uh, And then they're, you know, the pioneers of MLS, you know, 
people forget that Tab's the first player signed by the league. Tony also gets to come home and play in Giant Stadium with Tab for the Metro Stars. And John Harks is uh, D.C. United's captain, and he hoists the first uh, MLS Cup uh, in 1996. So, And that's how we kind of go out uh, of the film. So it's kind of coming-of-age story, uh, not only of these you know, three characters, but of American soccer. And, and Tom, for those who aren't fortunate enough to, to be able to, to go on June 7th and see the movie, is it going to be accessible immediately in the future? And if so, how? In the future, um, we are uh, still putting the finishing touches on the film. I would say it would be 90%, you know, of the way there. Uh, there's still some post-production things uh, to do so this is a you know a screening uh, in the public uh, and then from there uh, the distribution plan is is hopefully to partner up with someone and uh, get it out there in the world whether it's a Netflix or you know some other you know channel that people are familiar with um, but yeah the the idea is to to get it out into the world and and share this uh, story with everybody. Well, it's a great story of Kearney, New Jersey, and the soccer there. It's called Soccer Town USA. Guy who's helped create this, produce it, Dr. Tom McCabe. Tom, good luck with it. I look forward to seeing you on that Friday, and uh, all the best. Glenn, really looking forward to it. Thanks for having me on the show, and uh, all the best. You'll have to get on the waiting list for Soccer Town USA Friday, June 7th. It's a sellout. But tickets still available for the other three nights on the 4th, 5th, and 6th in New York City. On Thursday, June the 6th, the movie is Coach. It's the story of Tracy Ham, currently the new coach at UC Davis. She'll be our guest next week. Go to kickingandscreening.com. And that'll do it for On Frame. Join me with former Ohio State University coach John Bloom for the live broadcast Columbus Crew SC versus New York City FC from Mop Phrase Stadium on Saturday. Airtime 7-15 for the pregame show with City Head Coach Dolme Tehran. That's on WNYE 91.5 FM and the New York City FC Network worldwide on TuneIn. I'm Glenn Crooks.